Alrighty. Today's reading is Hebrews 8, so I'll give you a second to flip or scroll to Hebrews 8. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be priest, a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Well, thank you, David. Let's, let's pray. Father, as we come to think about the new covenant that Jesus brings in and we compare it with the old, help us to grasp what's new and to love Christ more and to sit in that freedom and relate to you in that freedom. So please teach us this morning and it's a privilege to come before you and to hear from you. Speak to us through your word in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. I want to begin where Rachel began, and that's to talk about religion and guilt. <laughs> okay, feelings of guilt are real, and I don't think I need to explain myself very much. That feeling of unworthiness, that feeling that you've been disqualified for stepping up and doing something wonderful that perhaps you can't now because of what you've done. It's not a psychological mirage, feelings of guilt. Feelings of guilt are real because guilt is real. Uh, guilt is real because we are guilty. <laughs> uh, we have, there are things we've done in our past, things that we have done that we can't blame our parents or someone else. We, we're responsible, uh, and those things have been wrong, and they have done damage, and they are an offense to God. And that guilt 
and feelings of guilt can therefore stop us coming to God and serving God. I wonder if that's true for you. In our passage today, Hebrews chapter nine, verse 14, we're doing chapters eight and nine, it talks about sinners being set free to serve the living God. How can that happen? Hebrews chapter nine, verse nine says, the gifts and sacrifices offered by the Old Testament priests were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Well, I wonder what can. Back in 2009, Cameron Diaz starred in a movie called The Box, which explored the whole theme of guilt. A man, unknown to her, comes to her door one day with a box with a button on the top, and he offers her and her husband a million dollars if they press the button on the box. What happens when I press the button on the box? Someone dies. Who dies? That's not your concern, you just need to know when you press the button, someone dies, but you get a million dollars. They debate it, should they, shouldn't they, we're not really responsible, he's just come, chance, so simple, we could earn a million dollars. She presses it. And then she has to live with the guilt, the feeling of guilt, of having pressed the button for a million dollars. That guilt undoes them. It's, uh, the movie premise is a reworking of an old idea. Apparently in Stalin's Russia, there was a certain psychologist who had a knack of being able to confess, get people to confess to almost any, a cri any crime that they're accused of, even if they're innocent. The secret, he said, revolved around the Mongolian peasant hypothesis. He told the story. Imagine a nobody of a man is brought into a large office that smacks of authority. There's a huge oak desk with a flag on its corner, cedar wood panelling on the walls, a huge leather chair behind the desk with an army general sitting it with medals pinned across his chest. The general says to the nobody, I have a million rubles in this drawer. They're yours on one condition. What's the condition? You press this button. What happens when I press this button? A man in Mongolia dies. He dies at once with no pain. What for? What's he done? That's none of your business, but it's for the good of the people. All you need to know is that as soon as you press this button, he dies and you get a million rubles. The man presses the button. He goes home knowing that for the sake of some money, he, he has killed someone who did him no harm. He wouldn't have done it for a few rubles, not even for 10,000, but who could refuse a million, right? He puts the money under his mattress. He's too guilty to spend it. When he can stand it no longer, he commits suicide to make atonement, and on the day of the funeral, the state goes to his, his place to retrieve the money. Everyone, that's the story, everyone, says the psychologist, has a Mongolian peasant. Everyone has harmed another person for their own advantage. And the psychologist's task was to dig around until he found it, and then when he'd found it, he'd dangle it in front of the person until they were writhing with shame and guilt, and then they'd confess to anything so that they could somehow atone for their guilt and shame. What's your Mongolian peasant? It was at the time when you told lies which destroyed part of someone that you love.
that moment when you bullied a younger brother or sister as a child and it still haunts you. Uh, maybe a, a time when you mocked someone with disability to your shame and to their grief. Uh, a time when you laughed at someone in their distress and they knew you, they knew that you laughed at them. For me, I think it was the terrible day at way I treated a school friend that I had just simply grown tired of. To my shame, I remember yelling at him because he'd follow me around the schoolyard and I didn't want him following me around the schoolyard anymore. And I, he, he would take no subtle hints, so I had to yell at him. He thought I was joking, just... So I had to yell at him again and I remember telling him never to follow me. And I remember the look of bewilderment and pain in his eyes. And that was the end of our friendship. And I had destroyed it. And in a small way, I had destroyed part of him as well. And it hurts me to recall it. My guess is that all of us could remember things like that, things we've sinned, done, we've sinned against God, we've sinned against those God has put in our lives to love. If you're having trouble thinking of something, just ask your spouse or your kids or your parents. You don't have to dig far enough before you wish your conscience could be washed clean. Feelings of guilt are appropriate when we are guilty, when we have done things. But how can that guilt be taken away? And how can feelings be dealt with? God has planned a wonderful thing, brothers and sisters. He has planned for our consciences to be cleansed. Not just our guilt to be taken away from, but our feelings of guilt to be taken away. Hebrews chapter nine, verse nine speaks of the problem. Verse 14 of chapter nine speaks of the solution. How does it work? You'll see on your outline, if you look on your leaflet. First of all, there's a promise of a new way for us to know God. That's chapter eight, we've just had that read. And then there's a sacrifice that cleanses our conscience, chapter nine. And then in the second half of chapter nine, there is a mediator who sets us free a promise of a new way, a sacrifice and a mediator. This letter of Hebrews has all been about Jesus. He is the powerful son of God. He is our brother. He is our great high priest. He's interceding before, before God for us on our behalf now. Jesus is a priest like Melchizedek, who is not only a priest but a king. He intercedes with all the kingly authority of the royal son of God. That's chapters one to seven. Now in chapter eight, it kicks off by pulling all these threads together and saying the point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. What he's wanting to say is that Jesus is a better priest for us than anyone else could be or ever has been. In the Old Testament times, of course, the way to come to God was at a fixed location. You came to the tabernacle, uh, which then the temple replaced this. And priests would enter a sanctuary area. You couldn't go in. But that earthly version 
was only a model version, a copy of the true sanctuary in heaven where God truly dwells. And the point of that comparison is for us to realize that because Jesus is our high priest who serves for us in heaven, in the real tabernacle, that means his ministry is better than any earthly priest. Uh, They only serve in a kind of copy of the true tabernacle in heaven. Now the implication is that the new way of relating to God through Jesus as our high priest, the new covenant is better than the old covenant which involved relating to God through priests and sacrifices. This is religion, right? Now models have their use. You can hop online, thank you, and uh, see a model of the work that's about to start on the tunnel. It's going under South Road the latest in completing the North-South Corridor. Okay, so you've got a model, an online model. It would be a mistake to think that the online animation was the reality. That's what people have spent billions of dollars on, right? The animation. No, (laughs) okay, that's the model. The, The real thing is what the model points to. In the same way, the tabernacle and the system of priests which God set up on earth in the Old Testament times, that was only ever a scale model of the real way, a new way, which God has established in heaven for people to come to him. A new way that comes through Jesus. And now that it's here, you'd be silly not to take advantage of it when God has raised Jesus up to heaven and kind of opened up the corridor If instead you sat with religion, if you relied on the old way, on human priests and sacrifices and human mediators, when God had opened up a new way, it would be like kind of driving your matchbox car on a scale model and think that there it was in reality. Isn't this great, worth billions of dollars? No. The new thing, the reality, that's where it's at. Same with religion and the new way. Back in 2017, I had the privilege of being able to go to Mandalay in Myanmar and teach the book of Hebrews, this book, to a group of young men who were training up for Anglican ministry in that country. There is an Anglican church in Myanmar because it was a British colony, so they have an Anglican church there, and locals train for ministry. Um, It was the first time this group had ever read the book of Hebrews. And I taught that book because I knew that their church style of worship was a very Anglo-Catholic style, okay? So they had robed priests, they referred to the altar in church, um, similar things to what we find in the Old Testament. So I thought the book of Hebrews would be helpful for this group. (laughs) And it was, my translator was the Archbishop of Mandalay, and the archdeacon, all right? And uh, we were going through the book of Hebrews and they looked at me at one point and said, we're learning a lot. And I said, great stuff. (laughs) Because if Jesus is your high priest, of course, what does this mean? It means no one else needs to be your priest, your intercessor. He is the one who intercedes for us. We come to God through him, now in heaven. 
He is there interceding for us. He's not on earth. We come right in the presence of God through him because he's in the presence of God representing us. To think that another priest could somehow be better for you than Jesus is a confusion and a mistake. And in the end, it is blasphemous. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and us, the man Christ Jesus. It's wrong for anyone else to put themselves in that position. We come to God through him. When the old system was in place, God promised a new and a better way. He wouldn't have made that promise if the old system of human priests worked perfectly. The fact that God made a promise about a new way which was coming means that something must have been wrong with that earthly system. Look with me at verse seven of chapter eight. If there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But the problem was God found fault with the people and said, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And then God promises a new covenant, a better covenant. Quoting from Jeremiah 33, we're told, the new covenant will will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. This was the deal or the system that God set up through Moses when it's talking about the old covenant, which our Bibles refer to, the Old Testament, right? Testament is the Latin word for covenant. The whole Bible is divided on these lines, right? You've got the old one. That's the one set up under Moses. Well, um, it will not, the new covenant won't be like that. Why? Because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. The problem with the old covenant was human sin. The old covenant required both parties, the Lord and people, to keep their parts. And the people didn't. The new covenant would be different. Verse 10, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. Under the new system, God will deal with people's unfaithfulness. People will want to obey God instead of wanting only to disobey him. He's not talking about sinless perfectionism that you'll never ever sin, but he's saying fundamentally there'll be a recalibration of your heart. You will want to serve God. Okay, and the reason is because you will know him personally. Verse 10, I will be their God and they will be my people. You see, no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Now, every believer in Jesus is a new covenant person. Uh, That is, you know God. And it's true, you might be able to learn more about God. We're learning a lot of him in the book of Hebrews, aren't we? But the thing is that when you learn more about God, it's not like you're learning about someone you don't know. You'll learn things and go, yeah, that's right, that's him. That's the God I know. Okay. Um, That's what God's like. Even, dare I say it, non-Christians can spot this difference. Matthew Paris is a newspaper columnist for the Times in London 
and he's an atheist. A few years back, he wrote a surprising article entitled, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe Africa Needs God. <laughs> After growing up in Malawi and then recently returning there, he said, it confounds my ideological beliefs, it embarrasses my belief that God doesn't exist, it doesn't fit with my worldview, but I now believe what I've been trying to banish all my life, that, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects and international aid effort, these alone will not do, in Africa, evangelical Christianity is the thing that truly changes people's hearts. He, an atheist, said, it brings about a spiritual transformation. He said, the rebirth is real. The change is good. He says in his article, when I lived in Africa, we had working for us Africans who had converted and who were strong believers. He said, the Christians were always different. Far from having cowed or confined its converts, their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world, a directness in their dealings with others that seemed to be missing in traditional African life. They stood tall. You know, we hear those words, we read Hebrews 8, and we know the difference for those African believers is they knew God. How did they know God? Because through Christ, God had forgiven them. That's the difference. Verse 12, you will all know God. They will all know God. How? Because I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sin no more. That, friends, is the new covenant. It is a better covenant. It is one that restores our relationship with God through the forgiveness of sins. It's one that deals with our guilt. Through being forgiven, God changes our hearts to want to obey him because we know him as a forgiving God. We don't just know of God, we don't just know about God, we know him. Do you know God? Or do you just know of God? Do you know him or do you just know about him? If you're forgiven by God, if you know that that's true, you'll know him. However, it is possible, I think, to grasp these things in your head to believe that Christ has died for you, to know in your head that God's forgiven you, but not feel it in your heart. Why is that the case? Because your conscience condemns you. You come to church, you're encouraged to come to God through Jesus, you know it's possible, but you find it hard to do. Because in your heart of hearts, you don't feel worthy. You carry guilt you carry memory of past sins which still haunts you. And for you, the issue is, how can I be free? How can I be free to serve the living God? I mean, I don't feel like I'm at all adequate or able right now. Well, the solution is to grasp and to deeply grasp the ministry that Jesus has exercised for you on your behalf. And that's why chapter nine is there. Because remember, the heart of the new covenant is not yourself. The heart of the new covenant is not myself. The heart of the new covenant 
is Jesus and his ministry to us. And to understand that ministry, we're going, we need to listen carefully, and I'm going to ask David to read verses 1 to 14. Thank you. Okay, chapter 9, verses 1 to 14. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampshade and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded, and the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover, but we cannot discuss these in detail now. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, the sins the people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit, oh, sorry. The Holy Spirit was showing by this and that the way into the most holy place had not been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the consciousness of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. But when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Thank you, David. Uh, what a great promise. That's what God wants us to get to. Clean consciences so we can serve the living God. Okay. The way to get to it, to get it is to think on the system under the old covenant. The, the old covenant spelt out, of course, the way that people could come to God. You had the tabernacle, the tent, the earthly sanctuary. You, um, the priest would go in through the courtyard, and then there'd be the first room on the right, Okay, where there was a lampstand and a table. That was the holy place. And then behind the holy place uh, was the most holy place, separated by a curtain there. And that housed the Ark of God. Remember, Raiders of the Lost Ark, okay? Um, that was off limits to everyone except to the high priest. And then only once a year, when he was permitted only to enter with the blood of a sacrifice, which he had to offer for himself, first and for the sins uh, of the people also, sins they had committed in ignorance. Now I want you to imagine you're an Israelite. The high priest, you come to meet God but you can't go in. <laughs> you have to have a mediator, someone who does it for you. But the way is barred for that person only once a year. And then after they come out, what do you see? You see barriers that still exist. The barriers are in place. The barriers have not come down. 
The Holy Spirit was teaching us that the way was not open for sinful people to come to God. A sinful priest offering animal blood in an earthly tabernacle or temple can't truly take away sins. You're still dirty. Because verse nine, neither the gifts nor the sacrifices nor the washings could actually cleanse your conscience. If you remember um, Shakespeare, okay, in high school, Macbeth, all right? We were like Lady Macbeth trying to wash ourselves clean of our guilt, but still crying out, will all great Neptune's oceans wash this blood clean from our hands? External washings can only ever clean us on the outside. They, can, they only ever applied until the new and the better way was made known through Jesus. He, verse 10, went through the true tabernacle in heaven, not the man-made copy on earth. He didn't enter by the blood of animals, the, the blood of goats and calves that couldn't work. Verse 12, he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, if you've got your own Bibles, those words, once for all, are worth underlying and memorizing. The sacrifice of Jesus, which we celebrated this morning, was not a, we weren't re-sacrificing it, it was a remembrance. It's not like we, Jesus was crucified again and the bread turned somehow into Jesus and we ate him or something like that and he had to be sacrificed. No, it was a remembrance meal because his sacrifice was once for all. It worked, once for all. It was sufficient, you don't need to do it again. He only had to offer it once. And that death, that sacrifice of the pure Son of God, that covers all of our sins, of all people, past, present, and future. He takes away all of our guilt. What this means is that we can be clean, not just on the outside, but truly on the inside. Because the guilt really has gone. Verse 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, how much more will that sacrifice cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? I want you to realize what this is saying. That offering that Christ made of himself has changed things for us. God is saying through his sacrifice, Christ has removed the two big obstacles of sin that are there. The first obstacle is guilt. Christ's sacrifice for himself pays the price of our sin and releases us from that debt of guilt. In, in other words, he has done what every human religion has tried to do but has failed in. He has set us free from the objective guilt of our sin. Uh, because he's paid it, there is no record anymore. You know, guilty, guilty, did that, did that. It's gone. That's the first obstacle. You say, but what if I still feel, feel guilty for my sin? What if I still remember what I've done? And when I remember it, I can't help but feel guilty. Well, of course, that can happen if your sin has affected others. 
and you may need to take steps to put things right. Okay, that's reparation, reconciliation. But insofar as you've sinned against God when you did those sins, that has been dealt with. And when you feel guilty, what you need to do is stop and change your prayer. So instead of saying, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, stop it. And instead say, thank you, Father, that you have forgiven me. Not because I deserve it, but because Jesus has paid for my sins once for all. Thank you that his death worked for me. Thank you that it covers all my sins, past, present, and future. Thank you that there is nothing that it doesn't cover. Thank you that because he has died for me out of your great love, I am forgiven. Thank you, you've released me from that, that burden of guilt. Do you get it? Start saying thank you, okay? When you do, the feelings of guilt, guess what? They go. Jesus frees you from your guilt. That's the first problem, guilt. The second obstacle is sin's mastery over us, the power of sin. That's what chapter eight was talking about. It's the grip of sin on our lives. When it says Christ's blood cleanses our consciences, it's not, it's not just saying we won't feel guilty anymore. It says Christ's death cleanses our consciences from acts that lead to death. What it's saying is that Jesus' offering of himself to God through that, the power of sin has been supernaturally broken. In theological speak, uh, to be set free from your guilt is justification. To be cleansed from acts that lead to death is sanctification. God making us holy. And it happens because of what Jesus has done outside of us. Which means, last point, that Christ is the mediator who sets us free. Verse 15. We haven't read this, the second half of chapter 9, but... Here we go. Verse 15, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. When you understand this, you see how ridiculous it is to go back to religion which relies on priests standing before man-made altars here on earth. Um, There is no altar, actually, that we can have here on earth. Uh, The reformers would have a table where they'd put the bread and the the juice, the wine. But Christ wasn't being sacrificed. It wasn't an altar. It was a table around which a family would gather. There's no altar anymore. Okay. We have a high priest who has entered heaven itself, who is now appearing before us in the presence of God. Verse 24. To be under the new covenant is to be free from thinking that you need to another sacrifice every time that you sin. Verse 26. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, if that was true. Here is the truth of the new covenant, that now, verse 26, he has appeared once for all, again, the same words, at the end of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, where this leads us is new certainties, and with these, the passage closes. Uh, Four certainties. Number one, verse 27. 
that we are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. This was always true. Um, we, we like to say death and taxes are the two certainties in life. Well, actually, they're not the only certainties. It's what happens after death that's certain as well. Everyone after death faces judgment. By itself, that would be terrifying, but, but for the second truth, verse 28, that just as we're all destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. That's a certainty. In other words, between ourselves and the first certainty of judgment is the second certainty of the cross of Christ who takes away our sin once and for all. And because that sacrifice was completely effective, there's now a third certainty. The third certainty is that he will appear a second time. The next great moment in your life is not when you might get married or when you might become a grandfather or when you, you know, buy a house for the first time or, or you, you know, get into that uni course. The next great, great thing in your life is that Jesus will come again. He will appear a second time. Not to bear our sin, he's already done that on his first visit. <laughs> but fourthly, to bring salvation for those who are waiting for him. Isn't that wonderful? That changes things, doesn't it? Four certainties. You'd do well to think on them and mold your life around it. Make your life plans around those. Well, let me ask to conclude, how is your conscience? We've been talking about heavy stuff, haven't we? Is your conscience clean or is it dirty? I don't know what your Mongolian peasant story is for your life, but we all carry guilt unless, unless it's been taken away. The tragedy is when Guilt can be taken away, but it's not, because despite Jesus sacrificing himself and being our high priest in heaven, the tragedy is he's done the work, but people don't accept it. Or another tragedy would be he's done the work, but they go back to religion, to human priests and sacrifices, which don't work. A lesser tragedy, I think it is a tragedy, is when people have had their guilt taken away because they've believed in Jesus, but they still don't live like it. They don't live with a free conscience. They keep punishing themselves whenever they remember what they've done. Well, guess what? Because your guilt is taken away, you don't need to feel guilty. How do you get to that point? You change your prayer. Instead of forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, thank you. Thank you, thank you. What these chapters have forced us to do and what God wants us to do is to deeply think on what Jesus has done and then get into the habit of regularly thanking God for him, for it and telling him you believe it. When you do, you will be free and then you will be able to come to God and step forward to serve him because despite what you've done, he's taken it away and it's no longer an issue. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus.
who offered his one true sacrifice for sin. And thank you that he serves in heaven as our high priest. He is the new covenant. And we thank you that you are able to cleanse our conscience and set us free to serve you, the living God. May it be true for each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.